0: Today, we conclude our series on the Apostles' Creed. We look at the last two articles, Resurrection of the Body and the Life Everlasting. We cannot consider resurrection and eternal life without considering our inevitable death. Scripture sees death as life's one certainty. Join pastors Kirk Sexton and Bruce Johnson as we discuss these important issues and how our faith and hope rests in the fact that Jesus rose in bodily form from the grave, and now lives eternally in heaven. Welcome to the Full Dig Podcast. I'm Pastor Kirk Sexton, and with me is my good friend and colleague, Pastor
1: Bruce Johnson. Kirk, it's good to see you. Good to see you on a Monday morning. I know, the 4th of July we're recording this, so happy 4th to you.
0: Well, happy 4th to you, too. Thank you.
1: Well, we had our closing of the series,
0: uh, and we took two articles the resurrection of the body and the life
1: everlasting. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and neither phrase mentions the word death, mm. but of course, uh, Pastor Drew says, "Well, we have to focus on death because they're connected." Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, death, uh, as a word, occurs earlier in the Apostles' Creed, where it talks about uh, the living and the dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you get to the end, the focus is not on death itself, but on life, mm-hmm. the resurrection. And then life eternal, right? which is interesting. Uh, to, to the good part mm-hmm. about what's the next phase of our lives.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's good that um, we have some time to talk honestly about death, because I think we sort of sanitize that out of our language and out of our culture, really. We don't talk about it much.
1: We talk about taxes quite a bit. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or complain about taxes.
0: And he did give us the, uh, the context of that saying that the only things that you can count on are death and taxes. Yes,
1: from good old Ben Franklin. Ben
0: Franklin did that, yeah. yeah. Well,
1: why don't we look at the text itself? Uh, this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified of God that he raised Christ whom we did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human, The resurrection of the dead has also come through a human. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. But each in its own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he's destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things have put, been, are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. Then all things are subjected to him. Then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all. So that's a little confusing there. The, the quote, I believe, is from Psalm 110 uh, about uh, God putting all subject things into subjection under the the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's a long, extended argument, and we'll get into Paul's rhetoric uh, right. in that passage.
0: Right. Well, I think if uh, you wanted to do some further study, you really need to begin at, Chapter 15, verse 1. Yes. Begin there, and then read through the entire chapter, I think.
1: So Paul's dealing with a problem here that the people in Corinth, some of them weren't sure that people who were Christian friends of theirs that had died, that, that they'd ever see them again. Uh, didn't know if they uh, began to the question, is there an afterlife at all? And so that's what Paul's trying to address here.
0: Right. And some believe that there were some false teaching in that church that may have said that they denied the reality of the bodily resurrection. So Paul does a a really good, complete argument of why that should not be the understanding.
1: And you were mentioning to me right before we started recording this podcast, Kirk, that uh, some of the ideas is that maybe there had been some Sadducees that had been converted. And of Mm -hmm. course, Pastor Drew gave us another dad joke in a sermon, that was even worse than the dead joke I gave the previous week. Well, that's to be debated. But it, it's debated, but it, uh, the joke was the uh, Sadducees don't believe in the resurrections. That's why they're so sad. sad you see. see, yes. And, and then it,
0: you said there's some other ones. Right? Oh
1: yes, yes. Uh, the Pharisees they they were very harsh about obeying every jot and tittle of the law, and that is because they weren't fair. You see.
0: Yeah, fair.
1: You see, I Here. like that. Yes, yes. But in any case, we don't want to be hypocrites because if we're hypocrites, we're not hip with it. Hip with it. That's right. <laughs> well, that's some good dad humor for our. At audience. least it's some dad humor. I don't know how good that is, but yes.
0: So it's very important in the Christian theology and in our faith to uh, to believe in the bodily resurrection. Um, do you have some thoughts on that?
1: Well, yeah, another great passage to look at, and one that could have been chosen uh, as the passage for the resurrection and life eternal, is from Philippians chapter three. Mm-hmm. And this ties it with our union with Christ, which is a theme we see over and over and over again in uh, scripture. In fact, our essential tenets talk about how central the union with Christ is mm-hmm. to our whole understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. So, this is from uh, Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 4. Paul says, and he's just talked about how everything changed when he became a Christian. Right. And his priorities changed. So, he says, beginning at verse 4, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already obtained. Hmm. And I love these thoughts from Philippians chapter 3 because they tie resurrection into our pursuit of, of virtue and, and doing the right thing and trying to please God. And saying, you know, God's not finished with me yet. Hmm. I still have a ways to go. I'm looking forward to the hope of eternal life. I'm looking forward to the resurrection of the dead. But there's work to do now.
0: Well, and life matters now. Exactly. Right. Yeah.
1: Because in the uh,
0: Corinthians text, if, if there is no resurrection, we might as well just
1: drink and be merry, I guess, right? Yeah, and of course that's Paul's... Uh, uh, reductio ad absurdum, you know, trying to say, that, well, that's an absurd way to view and he's trying to follow that uh, line of logic to a right. point in which you say, well, that's ridiculous. Yeah, And he says, yep, that's ridiculous. So let's, yeah. <laughs> let's start it from a different point and then go a different way with that.
0: Well, and there's much written in our Bible about the eternal life and we have some scriptures here from uh, John's Gospel that uh, you wanna share?
1: Yeah, uh, uh, in John's gospel, we see Jesus over and over again talking about eternal life. Mm-hmm. Of course, we think of John three sixteen and 17, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave us of one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him, he not perish but have eternal life. That eternal there is the same um, Greek word that's used in the text of the Apostles' Creed where it talks about everlasting life. And uh, the difference between eternal and everlasting uh, e- everlasting, uh concentrates on the length of time. Mm. Eternal talks about the quality Mm. of of that uh, life. Um, But it's the same word being used here, so slightly different English translations. Uh, And then you think of a passage from John chapter 6 where Jesus says, I have not come, or for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day." Mm -hmm. So both the concept of resurrection and eternal life in that same passage. Right. And then there's another one we can look to, and that's from John chapter 10, where Jesus says, "'My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Mm. So Jesus very much talks about the eternal life uh, that he brings for us um, and the eternal life that we have by believing in the Son of God.
0: Mm. Well, in our world, um, most people we know can read and write, but that wasn't true in Paul's day. Probably, probably, Eight and ten out of ten couldn't read or write?
1: Uh, depending on how you figure that out, that's a tough calculation to do right. what was going on ten uh, two thousand years ago.
0: Right. Yeah. And so this oral tradition and or the practice of those letters being written and then uh, shared orally to uh, their to their audience um, was the practice. Mm-hmm. Paul indicates that.
1: Yeah, we can think of uh, something similar. Um, When you go back several decades ago before cell phones, we remembered more phone numbers Mm -hmm. of work and friends or businesses that we'd call frequently. We would uh, look them up, but we'd have a lot of those memorized in our memory. Mm -hmm. And now how many phone numbers can you think of off the top of your head? Probably only my
0: wife's cell number. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, and
1: the church main office number. Yeah, so so that's an example of, you know, if you don't use it, you, know, you have other ways to do that. Right. So uh, if, if you don't read, you have to memorize and keep things in memory a lot more.
0: Yeah, well, in our pre-meeting, we have a uh, the pastors gather on Thursday mornings and we have a sermon study group. Many of the pastors have done a lot of work in the text before they arrive on Thursday morning. Uh, Because people were asking, well, gee, you guys don't start till Thursday morning. No, most of the people have pretty much a pretty good idea uh, where they're going with the text. And and we're sharing some resources
1: there. We are leveraging collective genius on Thursday mornings, yes.
0: But we had um, in our meeting on Thursday this idea of Paul's a little snarky.
1: Yes, a little snarky here because he the the rhetoric he uses. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he says, "Okay, well, let's let's go with this. There is no resurrection. What does that mean?" And right. he, he really drives it home. So that's an example of rhetoric. Yes, uh, and uh, you've thought about that too.
0: Well, I've just you know because rhetoric in in more. Probably when I was in seminary, the idea of the rhetoric and the study of the rhetoric and, you know, these new perspectives on Paul. There was all this new um, study on this and maybe more interest in it. But I don't think they got anywhere. Uh, Paul, <laughs> um, Paul is he's trained in Hellenistic way of of understanding the world and, and communicating. And there was a great interest in communicating, uh, orally. Uh, you were respected by that. Yes. Um, and you, people were entertained by it. Um, it is the ancient art of persuasion. That's what rhetoric really means. And so Paul is using his training there, but he's also been trained in, um, I don't know, rabbinic, if you will, um, how the rabbis would argue from Scripture. Right. So it's a combination that is, I don't think fits neatly in into traditional rhetoric. You know what I mean? And then there's like the complications where, especially in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, people think there are multiple letters put together, right? So there's, I see kind of in 15 sort of a... An argument right right and um i had um so you know i see like um some of these features of of rhetoric all of them kind of represented in that um in this letter um in chapter 15 he he clearly starts a new subject in this in this section uh chapter 15 so um you know there are many ways to look at it. Um, some say that the the beginning, uh, the theme of it is is indicated in in uh, verse twelve, which is the believers uh, will be raised from the dead, and then Paul begins to make a rationale, and the rationale is that the Messiah has died for our sins, and according in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried and he was raised on the third day uh, in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas or Peter, uh, the 12, more than 500 brethren, James and all the apostles. And he appeared to me also. And then he makes the argument, uh, chapter 15, 13 through 19. He says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then the Messiah has not been raised. If the Messiah has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. So, people
1: uh, who study rhetoric would say that's an argument from the contrary, right? Saying, "Well, let's, let's take the opposite view and yes. see what happens with that."
0: Right, and it really is. Uh, uh, if you're thinking about listening to this, you're you're. It's making you kind of tilt your head. What is right? I mean. Uh, you're kind of wondering where is Paul going with this, and it's a. I think it's it's a device he uses to get their attention, you know, and then he makes uh, the argument from ancient testimonies uh, from uh, verses twenty through twenty eight. He says that there's uh, statements in Genesis about Adam and the statements from Psalm eight six. All of these um, are from. Uh, the creation stories. Yeah. 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 So the argument is continuing. And I, I kind of think of maybe you might, or we might best understand this idea of this way of persuasion as in a courtroom. And the, um, the lawyers are either doing their opening statements or their closing statements, you know? Yes. Um, And they're arguing for, the facts and so Paul is going back in into the history of uh, not just you know he's going back into the Old Testament, he's going back into those that are who are witnesses, eyewitnesses who have been there and seen this and who are still alive mm-hmm. So he continues with that argument and then um, he concludes in uh, verse 50 through 58 um, he says, I tell you this brethren, Um, he wants them to understand um, the nature of the body um, and um, that we're going to be given these new bodies. Not just like our bodies, but there's a connection to our souls, but they're different, right? These bodies are different. That's right.
1: Um, We we will still be ourselves, but we'll be united with new resurrection bodies.
0: I think Pastor Steve was preaching one time about this bodily resurrection at Valley Presbyterian Church. And I remember him having a pretty heated discussion with a woman that says, I don't want this old body when I, I want a new body, you know. Uh, because Paul, or Steve was saying that this, um, that we would recognize each other, you know, that we would know each other. Um, but,
1: you know. It, it does give one pause when you think about Christ and his resurrected form mm-hmm. he still had the scars of what he had been through on the cross right so uh, in my resurrection body well it had i carried the scars that i have picked up along the way mm-hmm. just have a new uh, fresh scar on my leg uh, from some skin cancer surgery All well, my new resurrection body still have that scar
0: yes yeah well i think he just wants to make sure that if he, we're in Christ. um, Christ has been risen and God has the power to raise him. Uh, He has the power to raise us.
1: Yes. And uh, God will figure out about the scars and how old our resurrected bodies will be and things (laughs) like that. (laughs) Will my hair be gray or brown? I did like
0: how Drew made sure that Everyone understood we weren't going to be floating around on clouds playing harps. That's right. That Paul does indicate that we are going to have things to do in heaven. So
1: that's right. That's good. I don't know how to play a harp.
0: Well, you you might be able to take it up now. You know, they, was there, there was some story about um, a gentleman. He was he was learning to play the saxophone when he was in his eighties. And he said, well, I'm gonna be playing the saxophone for eternity, I might as well get started now. That's right. (laughs)
1: It's like everybody in Israel says, well, in heaven, I'll be speaking Hebrew, so you can learn it now or learn it later.
0: Well, you can learn the harp now, you know. All right, and
1: I'll take this under advisement.
0: And Heidi could be uh, your your two. She could be your instructor.
1: Yeah, maybe I'll start with a few less strings, like ukulele. <laughs> Only four strings on that one. We'll work on that one.
0: Well, ukulele is also very nice. I'd like to, I'd like to see you play in the ukulele.
1: All right, we'll work on that.
0: Well, each week uh, we've been looking at archaeology and. Um, You have some interesting things for us this week.
1: Yeah, so we're going to talk about ossuaries. Now, we've mentioned that before in previous podcasts. An ossuary is a bone box, um, usually made out of limestone, and they began being used in Jewish burial uh, a century or two before Jesus was born. Mm. They don't appear earlier than that, um, but they began appearing. And and what happens uh, in the climate of the Holy Land Uh, If you were uh, rich enough to afford a burial tomb, a rock-cut burial tomb uh, carved out of limestone uh, around Jerusalem, Uh, you would lay your loved one out on a burial bench in the tomb. And after a year, everything had uh, disintegrated except the bones. Only the bones were left, or if the person was wearing jewelry, that survived. And before uh, about 100 AD or so, uh, you'd take all those bones and they'd be shoved into a corner in the burial chamber, or they would be uh, put into a niche in the burial chamber or uh, some little uh, carved out pocket where they'd put all those things together and you'd find bones and, you know, jewelry and things like that, uh, which we've been able to discover and that tells us a lot about uh, uh, some of the burial practices. Mm-hmm. But uh, the phrase that's used in the Old Testament for that is that somebody was geared, uh, gathered unto their uh, ancestors. Mm. And they were quite literally gathered unto their ancestors or gathered together with their ancestors because all the bones were together. They weren't separated, right, one, right. Not, uh, one person to another. But when you have a bone box, you're able to place in that bone box an individual. So the bones are separated even after... Uh, the year, that secondary burial, the bones are separated. And that is reflective of something has changed in how people viewed um, their loved ones who were departed. Mm. Certainly it's a continuation of a sense of identity. They're they're not just numbered among the dead, they're a particular person, uh, even though they've died. And so the cure was uh, taken so that it's just one person in that bone box, that ossuary. The exception would be if uh, sometimes we find two people, in, uh, the remains of two people, two skeletal remains in the same ossuary, and that's either husband and wife, or buried together, or parent and child that are buried together. Um, but again, uh, be, uh, there's that familial relationship was so close that they were put to, put in the same ossuary. But other than that, one person per ossuary, and we've found some burial chambers where he had. Stacks of these ossuaries up uh, uh, three or four high because the um, tomb had been used for a number of years by the same family mm-hmm. So that raises the question how well or how widespread among Jews was a belief in the afterlife when Jesus is doing this ministry Some Jews believed in the afterlife, some did not. Mm-hmm. But uh, you have more of a sense of a greater percentage of the uh, Jewish population believing in afterlife. That's what we think is being reflected in the use of ossuaries, secondary burial in these bone boxes. And so that's the background to Jesus being raised from the dead and um, the promise that we'll be raised from the dead one, one day too. I find it remarkable that you read through the Old Testament and you have a sense of, you know, Uh, verses like who can praise you from Sheol, from the place of the dead. Um, You have that appearing as people are asking God to save them because you don't save me. God, I can't praise you if I'm dead. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a change of thinking uh, that happens by the time Jesus is around. And that really paves the way for the early disciples understanding Jesus has been raised and what that means. And as it, verses that we've already looked at in this podcast, our union with Christ means that we also will be raised with him one day. So that's the archaeology, Kirk. It's, it tells us something. It doesn't tell us everything, but I think it's a, a important background to how God prepared us for understanding the resurrection. First
0: John 1 says, That which was from the beginning... Which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify it, and proclaim it to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen, and heard and proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. I, I just, I've always found that text to be, these, these guys aren't making something up. They're, they are actually eyewitnesses. They've, they've seen him, you know, they've touched him. Um, they've, they've seen him after the resurrection. This is what they are sharing. So their testimony is true and
1: faithful. Yeah. And very evocative of the story of a doubting Thomas or mm-hmm. the apostle of that says he wasn't there for one of the resurrection appearances. Right. And Jesus says to him after he appears, when Thomas is around, mm-hmm. touch me, put your hands in my wounds. Yes. Uh, it's, it's really me. Yeah. And believe. Yeah.
0: Do you think he did?
1: Yeah. Jesus did? tells you to do something, you better do it. <laughs>
0: I, I, I think maybe he didn't need to yeah. at that point, but maybe he did.
1: Yeah, didn't need to, but he probably did, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Jesus just been raised from dead. He tells you to do something. Yeah, I think I'll do it. Yeah.
0: Well, each week we've also looked at the eco-confessional standards, and today— um, We've always looked at the Heidelberg, and we've also looked at the Westminster Confession and the larger catechism, sometimes the shorter catechism. Today, from the Heidelberg Catechism, question 57 says, What comfort does the resurrection of the body give you? And the answer is, After this life, my soul shall be immediately taken up to Christ, its head, the flesh of mine raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and be conformed to the glorious body of Christ. And then question 58 says, What comfort does the article concerning the life everlasting give you? And the answer is, Since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall possess after this life perfect blessedness, which no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor heart of humanity conceived, and thereby praise God forever.
1: I like that because uh, it talks not only about what's going to happen in the future, but what's happening right now. Uh, I begin to feel the joy of Christ that will be with me forever. I've started to feel that now. It's part of my life, part of my experience right now. And looking towards the resurrection, of course, I have hope in that. Mm-hmm. And that hope sustains me. Yes. yes.
0: And then uh, you want to share with us something you found from the Westminster Confession?
1: So in the Westminster Confession, it has a whole section that is on what happens after we die, mm. uh, which is uh, chapter 34. And it has three parts to that. The first goes like this. Human bodies after death return to dust. And see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal substance, immediately return to God who gave them. This is um, backed up by verses where uh, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, "You'll be with me today in paradise," mm-hmm. or to be absent with from the bodies to be present with the Lord. So that's what's being picked up here by the Westminster Divines, the Westminster Writers. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness are received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory waiting for the full redemption of their bodies and the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torments and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separate from the bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. So that's uh, the Protestant saying, well, we don't believe in purgatory. There's, right. there's no scriptural basis for that. Right. And then goes on with the next section. At the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls from forever. In other words, this is picking up from 1 Thessalonians 4 about what happens when Christ returns, the, uh, the dead will in Christ will be raised, but those who are still alive, uh, something's gonna happen to them. So uh, they, they get new resurrected bodies, even though they haven't died. Uh, new um, and different quality bodies, and they're gonna be different one from the other, or else we'd all look like uh, robots or you know, automatons uh, mm-hmm. uh, or cookie cutter houses. We won't be cookie cutter people when we're raised from death. And then the bodies of the unjust shall, by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonor, the bodies of the just by his spirit to honor and made conformable to his own glorious body. Mm. Yeah. So there's an accounting for everybody, and there's honor for those who trust in Christ. So along with the Westminster Confession, we have the larger catechism written for adults, and this gets into a little more detail about well, what happens uh, at each point in uh, that future process, the, the day of the Lord comes, there's a resurrection to the dead, and uh, a last judgment, and all those things. So question 85 is about, okay, so we've been forgiven for our sins now, so why do we still die now? Right. And trying to make sense of that. So the answer is, this is the answer for question 85. The righteous shall be delivered from death itself at the last day, and even in death are delivered from the sting and curse of it, so that although they die, yet it is out of God's love to free them perfectly from sin and misery and make them capable of further communion with Christ in glory when they enter upon, which are which they enter upon. So it's saying, oh yeah, we, we, we will be raised, You know, we, we're going through suffering now, but it's all going to work out in the end
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then the question well, what is the communion and glory which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately after death again uh, not what happens ultimately in the last day last judgment what happens immediately when we die and the answer to this is the communion and glory with Christ which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately after death is in that their souls are then made perfect in holiness and received in the highest heaven, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies, which even in death continue united to Christ and rest in their graves as in their beds. Until the last day, they shall again be united to their souls. Whereas the souls of the wicked are at their death cast into hell, where they remain in torments and in our darkness and their bodies kept in their graves as in their prisons until the resurrection and judgment of the great day. So the contrast and imagery between, um, what about our physical bodies? Well, for the, those who have trust in Christ, it's like they're resting in bed. Mm. And uh, for those who have not trust in Christ, well, um, they're resting in prison, a, a different imagery. And then it goes on to talk about what do we believe concerning the resurrection. This is question 87, and the answer is, We are to believe that at the last day there shall be a general resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. When that they then found alive shall in a moment be changed, and the selfsame bodies of the dead, which are laid in the grave, being then again united to their souls forever, shall be raised upon the power of Christ." The bodies of the just by the spirit of Christ and by virtue of his resurrection as their head shall be raised in power, spiritual and incorruptible, and made like his glorious body. And the bodies of the wicked shall be raised up in dishonor by him as an offended judge. Hmm. So a caution, caution to us to trust in Christ.
0: It's really good to review those those confessions when we get talking about some of these doctrines,
1: yeah, because you worry about that or you wonder about that, especially when there's a death in the family, and, mm-hmm. and you say, "What what's happened to my father, my uh, mother, my husband wife, my mm-hmm. son or daughter?" Sure, and um, to have some comfort, we I mean, who trust in Christ have every reason for comfort and. Um, Hope uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Right. And one day we will be raised.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, the uh, the Apostle Creed series that we've been in uh, concluded on Sunday, as we mentioned. And uh, because we have two articles, we have two apostles this week.
1: Right. We have the Apostle Thaddeus, also called Jude who's associated with the phrase, the resurrection of the body. And then uh, the very last phrase, "and life everlasting, is associated with Matthias, Mm. who was the uh, substitute, uh, uh, the one that was elected after the resurrection, after Christ ascended. They said, hey, we've gotta get, we've gotta get an even number of apostles again. We have 11 now, we need 12. And Matthias was chosen to to replace that. Mm -hmm. So, um, Thaddeus. Uh, which means uh, or he's sometimes called the man with three names mm. that's the nickname that Jerome uh, gave to him because he's in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark he's called Thaddeus um, in Matthew chapter ten verse three, at least in the King James Version he's also called L- Uh and then he's also called Judas son of James in both uh, Luke 16, or Luke 6, 16, and Acts 1, chapter 3. And when the apostle John mentions Thaddeus, he calls him Judas, not Iscariot. That's mm-hmm. in John chapter 14, verse 22. So lots of names for Thaddeus. It's con- kind of confusing to keep track of him.
0: Were these like nicknames?
1: Yeah, and, and of course a lot of the disciples have nicknames. Uh, Simon's called Peter uh, James and John are called sons of thunder and so on. Hmm. Okay. And, and sometimes even you, Kirk, are called the big kahuna. So, you know, people have all sorts of names. And uh, Thaddeus, <laughs> uh, anyway, is the one who at the Last Supper asked Jesus why he's not gonna manifest himself to the whole world after his resurrection. Um, and So and we really don't know much more about Thaddeus than that. Okay. Though there are traditions. Uh, and Matthias, of course, is the one where they Say a prayer, they cast lots, mm-hmm. and then they say, "Okay, it's going to be Matthias is going to be the one to replace Judas Iscariot."
0: I think you mentioned at one point that maybe they shouldn't have done that.
1: Well, it's not the way that you and I would go about saying, "Hey, well, you know, we we need another pastor or starting another church plant. How, how are we going to do that?" Well, right. let's cast lots. it's <laughs> probably not the process we'll follow. Right, we'll be more deliberative than that. But uh, but God bless that. Way where they say, we don't know, we've got to fully trust in you.
0: It's interesting that they thought they needed to have that twelve. That's a very biblical number.
1: Right. And they looked to one of the Psalms that, that talked about replacing them and they thought, well, I don't know, it, it seems like that's the right thing to do here. What do you think? And they mm-hmm. all said, you know, that's probably God saying to some something to us right now at this moment.
0: All right. And each week we've had a uh, quote from... C.S. Lewis, uh, what do you have for us?
1: Well, I have a quote from C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles, a preliminary study. And in that he talks about the whole concept of resurrection. So he writes, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man he has met fought and beaten the king of death everything is different because he has done so so really emphasizing how dramatic it is that christ has been raised from the dead and the whole game changes Mm. after that also every week we've been having a quotation from our reform heritage and kirk what did you pull out of the closet for our quote from our form Heritage this well, week? I'm
0: going back to the J.I. Packer well, his book uh, Growing in Christ and Pastor Drew, his title of his sermon was In His Presence, so I thought this might be a good way for us to conclude the series. Okay. He says, when the Creed speaks of life everlasting, it means not just endless existence, but the final joy into which Jesus entered and which he promised and prayed that his followers would one day share. Where I am, there shall my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Father, I desire that they also, whom Thou hast given me, may be with me where I am to behold my glory. And then he continues on. He says, being with Jesus is the essence of heaven. It is what the life everlasting is all about. I have formerly lived by hearsay and faith, says Bunyan's Mr. Standfast, but now I go where I shall live by sight and shall be with him in whose company I delight myself. What shall we do in heaven? Not lounge around, but worship, work, think, and communicate, enjoying activity, beauty, people, and God. First and foremost, however, we shall see and love Jesus, our Savior, Master, and Friend.
1: So not harps, but something. Something purposeful and good. And Jesus will be there.
0: And beautiful. Yeah. And joy-filled.
1: and Yeah. Well, Kirk, do you have a joy-filled prayer that we could well, uh, uh, conclude uh, today's podcast?
0: I thought we'd um, conclude with a prayer from the Valley of Vision. These are a collection of Puritan prayers, and um, this one is called Confidence. And uh, Drew concluded his remarks on Sunday talking about how we can have confidence in this. So I thought this was a good
1: prayer. Very appropriate.
0: Let us pray. O God, Thou art very great. My lot is to approach Thee with godly fear and humble confidence, for Thy condescension equals Thy grandeur, and Thy goodness is Thy glory. I am unworthy, but Thou dost welcome, guilty, but Thou art merciful, indignant, but Thy riches are unsearchable. Thou hast shown boundless compassion towards me by not sparing Thy Son and by giving me freely all things in Him. This is the foundation of my hope, the refuge of my safety, the new and living way to Thee, the means of that conviction of sin, brokenness of heart and self-despair, which will endear me to the Gospel. Happy are they, who are Christ's, in him at peace with thee, justified from all things, delivered from coming wrath, made heirs of future glory. Give me such a deadness to the world, such love to the Savior, such attachment to his house, such devotedness to his service, as proves me a subject of his salvation. May every part of my character and conduct Make a serious and amiable impression on others and impel them to ask the way to the Master. Let no incident of life, pleasing or painful, injure the prosperity of my soul, but rather increase it. Send me thy help, for thine appointments are not meant to make me independent of thee, and the best means will be in vain." without super added blessings. Amen.
1: Amen. Bruce, uh,
0: we should have a little programming note to add to our closing here today that you and I will be taking a little break.
1: For the summer, but we'll be back for the fall series of sermons on the prophet Jeremiah. And we'll begin that while you are still on your sabbatical, Kirk. Right. So we'll have a couple weeks with uh, guest podcasters. Oh, You'll have to tune in to see who the guest podcasters are. A mystery to be solved. Well, thanks, Bruce. Thanks, Kirk.